the next stop, Sprawlcast. You're listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Klossus, and I'm the founder and editor of The Sprawl. And Sprawlcast is a show for curious Calgarians who want more than the daily news grind. This show is made in collaboration with CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, and we are broadcasting slash podcasting on Treaty 7 land. This is the home of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Sutina Nation, Stony Nakoda Nation, and Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. It's a warm September day, and 4th Street Southwest in the Beltline neighborhood of Calgary is bustling with life. On one side of the street is the Sheldon Schumier Hospital. On the other side, Central Memorial Park. And today, the park is full of all kinds of people. A man in a suit leans against a wall, reading a newspaper. Moms with strollers go by. By the library, arms and legs are waving in the air as a woman leads an exercise class of some sort. All right, bring those legs up. Starting off strong. In the southwest corner of the park, five people are gathered together under a tree, including a young man who looks like he's asleep. His chin is resting against his chest. They are regular visitors to the supervised consumption site in the Sheldon Schumier across the street. A couple cops on bikes pull up, and the group starts to disperse. And as the cops rouse the young man, he starts to get upset. Pretty soon he's crying. Not just crying out, but crying, wailing. He thrashes backwards and his head hits against the shopping cart behind him. He's in obvious distress and anguish, and it's hard to watch, and so people don't. They glance over at the commotion, then look away. Yeah, he had gone to the site, and his, his drug of choice is, uh, is the, the opiate, so he was falling asleep, it was putting him, you know, putting him out, and uh, the officers obviously picked up on that and wanted to come over and see what was going on. That was their, that was their in to our group. They didn't need to come and see us. He was just a guy falling asleep, there was no need to come and, and single us out. This is Rocco. He's homeless, and he spends a lot of time at the park. He likes being close to the supervised consumption site, which is one of six that are operating in Alberta. Now, these were put in place under the previous NDP government. And according to the Alberta Community Council on HIV, they have a 100% success rate. In over 300,000 visits to these sites since they opened, no one has died from a drug overdose. But the new UCP government has made it very clear that they're not keen on this service, and so they're reviewing it. And proposed new sites in the province have been put on hold. This is a contentious issue, obviously. We're going to hear some different perspectives on it, starting with Rocco. I've been out of work for a little bit, a little while. I got addicted to prescription painkillers primarily. Uh, that's how this all began. And uh, from there, I ended up... Uh, using um, non, uh, non-prescription drugs that were a little bit harder than anything I've ever touched before. Um, a lot of that's the crystal meth and, and a, little bit of the, a little bit of the fentanyl, but um, it's, I guess, the convenience of coming down here and being safe, first of all, and, and it's a bit of a community too, right? Like, you're in a group of your peers, you don't feel so in the shadows and alone, you know? So... It's, it's, in my opinion, a, a good program all around, despite 
the, the, the negatives that come with it. And how long have you been coming to the site here? I think I had my first visit was probably, well, just under, probably just under a year ago. And I've been, I've, I've, over that period of time, I've, I've been drawn here more and more to instead of, like, I'll, I'll walk here to use instead of just doing it where, wherever I am. And I, and I kind of find that a little bit strange, but um, it's, the, it's the, the, the social aspect of it. Yeah, definitely. And, and tell me a little bit more about that, because it is, you know, it's a medical facility, uh, the supervised consumption site. It's a public health offering that's important, obviously. But uh, that community aspect, I, I hear you saying that that is, that's critical. Well, especially for people like myself. Well, I guess I can't speak for anyone else, but we we sort of live on the fringes of society with me, and the majority of us are homeless. Um, we're drug users. So what we have to do has to be done either behind closed doors, in the shadows. You, you know, you, you don't want kids to see you. You don't want, if you have any responsive responsibility at all, you don't want to be leaving remnants of your 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 what you've done out laying in a park like i'm sure many people have seen it and i've seen it myself like i can't believe that people leave what they leave hanging around after they've used like the, the it's disgusting first of all to see and it's a health hazard for people especially you know kids who aren't, aren't thinking about that yeah and and is there a sense of ownership of of this park uh by the people who are here um you, you you try to have some roots somewhere because we have being homeless you, you you have nowhere to plant yourself that you can you can safely call your own um we tend to try and 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 make this our uh, a spot where we hang out but um honestly we get run out pretty much as you probably just witnessed there with what was going on when you arrived like we don't get much leeway, much freedom as far as where we are and what we're doing. Like there were probably within within a 50 foot circumference of where we were sitting, there must have been 150 other people. And where did the uh, law enforcement come? Has that increased at all? Uh, you know, when you think of like even half a year ago or a year ago, in terms of the police presence and with respect to contact, um, yeah, I and I'm not I'm not totally oblivious to what's going on for a lot of the people that how they have to acquire what their what how they get their drugs um the neighborhood has been a bit tense about what's been going on and uh you know granted i I get it like the the police presence has been stepped up um so there's more guys around of course the contact's going to be more frequent i don't begrudge it um i come from a family where my father my uh, uh my uncle was in a police inspector so I grew up with a lot of respect for for the law growing up, and sometimes that's a detriment out here for me to to have that type of respect and 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 give them the leeway that they have because everybody puts up barriers to because they're afraid. Like you saw that that guy was crying his eyes out over there. So you know it's it's a catch twenty two depending on on your own personal take on I guess uh, law enforcement. And you mentioned too, uh, you know how how you're living on the margins of society when you're in this park do you feel that or do you feel a part of what's all going on uh here in this beautiful park in the middle of the city or do you feel kind of yeah what's the experience like well i i certainly do like i tend to i i still interact with the general public i don't shy away as if i'm not one of them i still am one of them and when we're out in a park like this this is uh this is a park for everybody 
So there's, there's no reason for us to feel ostracized or, or even ostracize ourselves when we're, we're able to sit in a, in a place like this and, and interact normally um, with, with everybody else in the city of Calgary. It's just they may not be walking across the street to the consumption site like we might. Yeah. But, you know, you, 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 you're discreet. You're definitely discreet. And, and that's all a, a certain maybe a feeling of pride or, or whatever it is. But, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't say, oh, well, I guess I'm going to run across the street and go do a shot now. Like, you know, you, you keep that to yourself because that's a habit that you have to have. Like, it's what you have to do and you, you, you don't broadcast it. Yeah. And how would you describe the care that you get at the site over there? It's incredible. Um, they're, they, they care way beyond what, uh, what you would expect, um, especially when there's been uh, either a close call or, a, um, or an overdose where they've had to do a reverse inside the building. Um, the, the, the ladies and, and the guys that are there, of course, do. They pay really close attention. They're making sure that... If, if the person who, uh, who was in distress is showing any other signs of potentially further, further distress or even, even something worse, um, they're, they're right there and they're all over it. Um, yeah, they're amazing. It's great. I, I think they've, they've certainly saved lives, 100%. And what would it mean if that service wasn't there? Um, Yeah, you. Sure, I want to say that the world's going to come apart and it's going to be all you know, doom and gloom, but it, it's just going to morph, change, and we pivot and we we, we do things a different way. Um, the the my feeling of safety for myself, I don't really push the envelope to the point where an overdose is imminent or potential. But I have friends who who I worry about when they're out doing their thing and I'm I'm glad that they're they're supervised in the consumption site. If it's not there, I can't be there for them. I've saved 28 people. So, you know, I can't do it every and I can't do it much longer either. It's it's a taxing. What do you think uh, people need to know about the crisis as as someone who's a user of the supervised consumption site? You know, you've been aware of the tension like you describe in the community about having this service here um yeah what do you think people need to be aware of the the majority of the people that are in the position that they're in whether they're using the consumption site or not they may just be doing what they're doing outside of uh, um, this facility the majority of the people that are in this position are here because of a medical condition and they're um their, their ability to access prescription drugs to manage this or, or at least mitigate it and, and maybe even eradicate the, the, the addiction, was they were taken away. They were cut off and had to go to another angle, which was, unfortunately, um, this, this fentanyl machine that's rolling around. The majority of people that are down here are not people who went, went wandering into drug addiction, eyes wide open, and, can't, and couldn't wait to get high. A lot of the people that, that are here and doing what they're doing, they're doing it because if they didn't, the sickness and the, the horrific experiences that you would have to go through um, are, are too scary to bear. And, and you go and you do this and risk your life, every, like you're risking your life every time you touch the shit. Like, it's, uh, it's scary. And how do you feel uh, about your own outlook? You seem quite upbeat uh for somebody in the in the circumstance you're in 
Um, well, I'm still not even 100% uh, sure why I'm still here. Like, I ended up here, and it was probably a, a just a, what really should have been a short-term thing. And I found a niche down here and a sense of belonging and and uh, maybe, I don't know, a, a need down here for, for me and, and some of the things that I can do and, and or I'm willing to do. And I, I feel I'm doing something that that I should be doing and maybe I'm punishing myself for something that I don't know what I did yet. Um, I want out, but I don't think I'm ready yet. Thanks very much for your time, Rocco. Thank you. To learn more about this issue, I spoke with Rebecca Haynes Saw. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Community Health at the University of Calgary. Her training is as a health sociologist, and she's been looking at substance use, addiction, and harm reduction for two decades. I always make a little bit of a joke that harm reduction, you know, is is so controversial that it can break up families because even in my own immediate family, I I, I have debates with uh, folks that I love and care about who who take a different approach than I do and uh, and find it hard to uh, get on board with the idea of, of supervised consumption. And um, I think it gets at the heart of the values that many of us were raised with um, that, you know, it's better not to do drugs or that, you know, people who use drugs make a choice and if they become addicted or experience the consequences, well, you know, they brought it on themselves. There's that sort of Judeo-Christian morality of, um, you know, being clean and being pure and, and being godlike. And then, you know, on the flip side, there is almost a missionary-like zeal to save people in addiction uh, and that what we need to do to make them productive, healthy uh, citizens and contributing is to get them clean and to get them off drugs and to force them into treatment or force them into jail. And, you know, walking through the evidence that although these are values that we've long held, the interventions based on these values don't really work and they're not really effective, that takes a lot of, of um, either lived experience, direct experience, or a lot of um, convincing for some people. I think these are values that people hold on really tightly. Um, and I always try and get back to the fact that, yeah, like we all want really good outcomes for our family members, for the people we love. And the other thing is that in our homes, and in our families and in our relationships with people, we've probably all been deeply impacted by substance use, addiction, and mental health. And so if you've, if you've had that experience growing up or you had a partner um, who struggled with addiction or a child, like you will likely have very strong views about the topic. It's a very well-known idea in the, in the literature and policy, the war on drugs. And we say the war on drugs is actually a war on the people, right? So there's no war on the substance of cocaine or or there's no war on heroin the war is on people using heroin and people using cocaine these you know these are the casualties these are the people who feel the effects of the war through incarceration through overdose mortality and through um, the sheer stigma of being socially excluded because you use drugs in february of this year Frustrated residents and business owners took their concerns to City Hall. Here's some of what was expressed to city councillors at that council committee meeting in February. 
The first speaker here is David Lowe with the Victoria Park Business Improvement Area, followed by Sherry Crawford. Where we find ourselves today was formally being signaled by businesses and residents in the spring of 2018. Something was very wrong, yet concerns and warning signs were formally dismissed. Worse, the rhetorical device of we are saving lives was being used at every turn to instill doubt, guilt, and anxiety over saying anything critical. Good public health policy should not be crafted by rhetoric, value signaling, or claims in the media. It needs to be based on facts, evidence, and data. Yes, unequivocally, supervised consumption is well proven, but it is not benign. There are serious consequences and impacts that need to be considered and balanced. My daughter's condo building has been broken into, and the neighborhood now seems to be a magnet for all the crystal meth dealers and addicts in the city. I do have compassion for people struggling with addiction. I volunteered at the Calgary Young Offenders Centre for eight years, and I know some of the horrors that people do try and forget through drugs. I've also had a good friend die through drug use. I do think every life is of value and every life matters. However, in order to reduce the harm that addicts do to themselves, you knowingly and deliberately choose to put the lives of all the innocent taxpaying contributing members of society who live there at risk. The next speaker was Jessica McEckern, a peer support worker for the supervised consumption site. The hypervigilance, I feel like, has been um, created ever since this, it, people are trying to find a reason to shut us down. People want a reason, and now they're finding it in meth users. But everybody, they're, they're, I was a meth user, and now I'm a contributing member of society. It's possible, and it was just... It, we can't punish people out of this. We can't criminalize our way out of this. And like, I understand um, people feel scared of people they don't understand or know. And um, and I on I know I also want to say that people with a meth psychosis. I've been in meth psychosis. They are terrified. They are paranoid and extremely terrified. They're not angry. They're not hostile. They feel like everything is like they're gonna get arrested. They feel like everything is coming down on them. Everybody's in on it and they're just terrified and scared. Some of the people who spoke out at that meeting say that they've seen an improvement now, that there's more police in the area. I asked Rebecca Haynes-Saw about this. Is opposition to these sites based in legitimate concerns about safety? Or does it have more to do with discomfort with people who are marginalized? I think the assumption that everybody is necessarily disorderly and violent um, is informed by fear. And this is something strong for me to say, but I, I really feel it deeply having grown up in a, in a marginalized community in Toronto, which is Regent Park, is that people have a lot of assumptions about living in a so-called drug neighborhood. And I really balk at the idea that people in downtown want a downtown urban condo lifestyle but want it completely sanitized. And I'm not saying people need to live in a context where they feel unsafe or where there's crime, but inner cities have crime. You know, crime is up across our city. Um, it's not only because of the supervised consumption side. So I feel like it's been scapegoated. And, and this mainly comes when people say, oh, well, like, if you are such a strong advocate for, for safe consumption sites, Rebecca, why don't you put in your community? Well, you know, guess what? I grew up in a community where drug use, drug selling, sex work was happening not far from my doorstep. So I have experienced that. Um, it really wasn't a threat to my safety. Um, and it actually made me more compassionate and want to work in this, this area. 
I don't want to be dismissive and I don't want to sound patronizing to community members who have concerns, but you, you read comments where people say, you know, I was walking with my kid to school in the Beltline and we were playing a game called Count the Needles. Now, I've walked around the Beltline. I've seen some needles um, occasionally. I, I wouldn't say that there's enough to play Count the Needles and I really question what parent would actually find that to be a fun game with their kids. I've heard other adults say they're afraid to even go to the Schumer site. You know, I have been there for urgent care getting stitches in my leg and, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel at risk at any time. Um, there's a lot of security there. If anything, that model of a supervised consumption site is very corporate and very different from, from other models, right? There's lots of security and it's in a, you know, well-lit, you know, you know, very, um, safe building. So yeah, there's that idea that, that kids are necessarily at risk. And you know, what are we communicating to our kids? I'd like to ask people and, and this, uh, a doctor, uh, who works in harm reduction in the U.S., Aaron Fox, has made this point. Like, what message are we sending to our kids if we allow citizens to die of overdose, right? Like, aren't isn't it a message that we don't care about people using drugs if, if we're not doing everything we can when two people a day are dying of opioid-related overdose, right? Mm-hmm. And... And let's talk about that, uh, what these supervised consumption sites do day in and day out, uh, 24 hours a day yeah. uh, here in Calgary. Um, yeah, what is what is the impact? I think that that's something that, that gets lost because the kind of the superficial version is, you know, they go there and they use drugs mm-hmm. and then all these kind of judgments kick in that, as you say, were kind of raised with ver- from very early on. Yeah. Well, I think on one level, there's this idea that, you know, we're enabling drug use, we're encouraging drug use, or we're attracting people to the site. And that is counterintuitive to the needs assessment that was done by my colleagues here at the University of Calgary that showed people using drugs downtown and in our neighborhoods would not travel more than about 1.1 kilometers to use drugs, right? So it the services were put with a were put because there was a need there. So the idea that if they weren't there, people wouldn't be using drugs downtown and they wouldn't be, you know, intoxicated in public or, you know, maybe littering or or sometimes getting in fights or self-harming and and being frightening to people. You know, I think that's a myth. These are problems we have to grapple with. Um, and I know that that services such as the dope team were, were scaled up to try and address some of the needle debris and, and some of the disorder. You know, one of the other things that is really, you know, hard to grapple with is that in response to community concerns, police presence was scaled up in, around the site. And, and from what we know from people using drugs, that's a real deterrent to using the site. So, you know, it is, I think, a challenge Um for community to accept, but we also know from the literature that this takes time. You know, it takes up to five years to pe- for people to feel like, you know, okay, this is acceptable in our community. So when I, I've commented on social media, when I see these police reports about, um, you know, calls to police are up, you know, check on welfare, reports of disorder are up. I think this has a lot to do with hypervigilance in the community and people really watching and uh, being concerned and um, having a low tolerance. And I just think all the energy put into 
observing and monitoring and fighting and protesting. You know, we could put this towards community-based solutions. We could think about ways to work with existing organizations that are supporting people. Um, and we could expend that energy in a better direction. But again, we're in this place of, um, you know, deep denial about uh, substance use problems and um, kind of blinders about what's really going to work. Like the idea that if we got everyone into detox, they'd get clean and they'd get a job and they'd carry on with their life. You know, that's a great goal, but it's not what's appropriate for everybody. And the province right now, uh, They've set up a panel to look uh, at these supervised consumption sites uh, and do a review. Uh, what's your sense of that panel and that, that entire effort? Well, when talk of the panel first started coming out in June, you know, I immediately um, got anxious and worried seeing that from the get-go, the emphasis was on the socioeconomic impact. And this is not typically uh, the markers or metrics of how we evaluate a public health intervention or a healthcare service. Now, social disorder is something um, that we need to look at, but you know, the evidence we have um, across North America has not shown consistently that, you know, these increase drug, uh, drug-related crime and disorder. So, the government's saying they have the public health evidence in their possession, and we've already looked in the last government um, at the harm reduction literature. So this is going to do something new. All of that's going to be out of scope, and we're going to look at the impact on businesses and communities. Well, I feel like when you generate that evidence, it is catering to the people who've been unhappy with it. They're going to come out. They're going to say what they didn't like. What will be the way of deciding, you know, what what wins out in the end? Um, you know, are we going to count the number of people who said they dislike it or it's had an impact on their business versus the community members who say they have no problem with it? And how are we going to weight that evidence in a really unbiased and objective way against the public health evidence around the positive benefits. So I'm not saying that these sites are perfect, and I'm not saying that there aren't things that we could improve upon or that everybody should accept them. But to me, it seems like an exercise in futility and like the decision has already been decided. And then I'll say one other thing in that. There is a great emphasis also on this idea that we need to invest in treatment and we need to invest in the continuum of care. And I've been working in drug policy and mental health. Um, it pains me to say, but it's been 20 years now in three different provinces. And the continuum of care is a wonderful idea. It's a concept around which we've had so many uh, consultations and, you know, stakeholder tables and, and government engagement, and we don't have a continuum of care. It would be nice to think that this government is going to implement this beautiful, wonderful continuum of care for people with addictions. I'm very skeptical that could happen, and the fact that that's being sold as a solution um, that's going to be better than harm reduction, that harm reduction is only a tiny part of the continuum of care and we're going to expand it, it's going to be great. You know, we have a valuing mental health report that's recommended this already, was enacted on by our last government. Um, 
you know, I, I think it's unrealistic. So when you hear that rhetoric that, well, you know, we need to invest more in treatment and treatment and then continuum of care solution, it's really a lot of rhetoric, you know? When you look at, you know, the news about this and kind of the public conversation around, uh, super supervised consumption sites, what do you think is missing from the conversation? I think what's missing from the conversation from someone who um, is a sociologist and someone who looks at in public health at like what we call the structural context and health inequities is that, you know, the solutions are bigger than treatment and harm reduction. The solutions are really looking at root causes and providing people um, you know, with jobs and with stable housing and with, um, you know, meaningful lives, all those supports and services. So the idea that you can live in a city with incredible wealth such as ours and such a gap between the rich and the poor and so many people making so much money um, and it not really being fairly distributed to other people, like these people's people at who are suffering who are underhoused and who have addiction and mental health issues and who are um, you know living on the streets many are the casualties of our economy right they're they're casualties of this inequity in society and so as we continue to profit we're further harming them by saying you know they need to get off drugs so they can also contribute to our economy I'm going to sound like a like a socialist but it you know it is a critique of capitalism and it is a cr- critique of of inequity. We're going to come back to that interview. But first let's go to Lethbridge because this issue of root causes is one that came up at a city council meeting there in August. Here's Lethbridge mayor Chris Spearman. The uh, the supervised consumption site has certainly had challenges in the community. It's a new facility in a smaller city. But we have root causes for the drug issue. Root causes that are things like poverty and homelessness and unemployment. And people who who are on drugs who are addicted often say their life on drugs is better than the life off of drugs because we're not dealing with the root causes. The Lethbridge supervised consumption site opened in early 2018. It's run by a non-profit agency called Arches. Councillor Blaine Higgin put forward a motion for Lethbridge's city council to ask the province to defund the supervised consumption site. Now this council meeting happened on the same day that the UCP government announced its new panel to review supervised consumption sites around the province. Let's listen into a bit of this debate. We're going to hear from Councillor Higgin, followed by Councillor Joe Morrow, who also supported the motion. People have said on social media that I must hate drug users and I want them to die because I'm against the SCS. I don't hate them. I have compassion for them. I don't want them to die. I want them to be enabling. I don't want to be enabling and indeed encouraging them to stay on drugs. I want them off drugs. I want them clean and healthy. I want them to be part of our society. I want them living life to the fullest potential with friends and a sense of purpose. Great news from the government today. I think we're all happy. Um, And I think we all expect that. But the nine of us here aren't representing the province of Alberta. We're representing our community. And so if we were to pass this resolution, 
I think it would send a message to the province clearly of how we as a nine members of council, we've heard our community, we hear their frustrations, whatever else they've shared with us. To me, this is, this is the appropriate time to do it because they would understand that the nine of us here are listening to our community, trying to resolve their problems, and we can't. Now we'll hear from Councillor Rob Mirashiro, followed by Councillors Jeff Kaufman and Belinda Croson. This would be really succinct after hearing that. Um, Councillor Morrow, do you want people in Lethbridge to die? Our most marginalized population, do you want them to die? Councillor Mirashiro, I'll... Uh, yes I'll or let, no? Yes or no? I'll let you answer that. No, I'm asking you. Do you want our most marginalized population in Lethbridge to die? Councillor Mirashiro, I'll let you answer that. You know the answer. Well, um, defunding the supervised consumption site will mean people die. So thank you for your answer. A friend of mine actually recently said that the one thing that, that she's noticed about this debate or this conversation is that we seem to be a community that's losing empathy. Um, we're losing empathy for those struggling with addictions, mental health, homelessness. We're losing empathy for those who are investing in the community, dedicating themselves to uh, producing goods and services, creating a, a living. What's also coming out of it is that we're starting to vilify people. We're starting to vilify people in the business community because they are frustrated, they are angry, they are worried. And we're vilifying a not-for-profit organization who is trying to actually do something during this crisis. And that really, really concerns me because that's not the way a good community moves forward. I have sat with every member of this council on committees and on groups trying to solve this in various ways. I know people's hearts are in this um, and want to do better. And what keeps me grounded and keeps me moving forward, when I actually get off social media, and I'd recommend you all get off social media, and we actually talk to people in Lethbridge, it quickly becomes obvious how much more we have in common and how much we are thinking similarly on this issue. And what is absolutely incredible, today we have focused on the one thing that is separating us. Let's start talking about what we have in common. We are facing a drug epidemic in Lethbridge and across North America. When you are facing a complex issue, you need complex coordinated answers to that issue. We need answers from public health, recovery and treatment, police, from the judicial system, from governance, from housing, and we need them to work in a coordinated fashion. Not only are we not seeing enough resources, we are not seeing a systemic approach to this. Be very aware the supervised consumption site is not our jurisdiction. It was um, licensed by the federal government and is funded through the provincial government. But when it comes to the supervised consumption site, when it comes to its role in harm reduction, I approach it as I will when we look at vaccines in a month or so as the flu vaccines come out. I look to the public health experts because, again, it's not our jurisdiction, so I look to experts to help us figure it out. We see with the increase in measles and the epidemics related to other contagious diseases what happens when even the best intentions lead to fear and misinformation which influence public health. Diseases we thought we had put behind us are once again prevalent and kids are again put in danger. Let's be clear about this. We're in an epidemic. Epidemics need smart public health decisions made by public health experts. We also, of course, need the experts to help us in addictions, recovery, policing. These aren't the only answers, but they are vital parts of the answers. I will not support this resolution. I will support my city, as I've done for years. I will continue to fight for everyone in this city. I'll advocate, I'll promote, I'll work with anyone who wants to build a better Lethbridge, but I will not go backwards.
Thank you. Councillor Higgins' motion was voted down 6-3, which means the Lethbridge supervised consumption site will keep serving the people who need it, at least for now. All right, let's go back to that interview with Rebecca Haynes Sa at the University of Calgary. I'm curious, in the course of your work, have you like have you observed what makes people change their minds about harm reduction? Because it is a bit of a process for a lot of people. I think it's it's really interesting. So, um, you know, on a on a communication level, I think face to face conversations. Uh, a podcast like this or the conversation you and I are having or even, um, you know, I've had radio interviews with um, journalists, I would say, are on the conservative side and, and to see them shift their views and to see them support um, harm reduction conversations because they hear the evidence. And also, um, you know, having having that family experience or hearing from family members sometimes shifts people. Uh, I'm struck, though, that there is a lack of compassion because I do have research with parents whose children have died of overdose, and, and sometimes I, I see and hear comments like, well, you know, there must be something wrong with that family, that their kid used drugs, and if you're a better parent, you know, maybe your, your child wouldn't have died. So... There are some people who, who lack compassion and lack understanding, and, and I don't think we can change them. So, But I think face-to-face conversation does a lot. You can't bombard people with evidence. And, you know, I think it's on public health folks and academics. We love to bombard people with evidence. It doesn't really change hearts and minds uh, all too well. And then the other thing, of course, that changes um, how people think and feel is whether or not the substance is illegal, right? So a lot of people will, I mean, it, it's a good thing that we're invested in the social contract and, you know, we, a lot of people are focused on, you know, obeying the law and, and you know, keeping, keeping, keeping that civil discourse. But I've saw, seen that with my work on cannabis, right? So as cannabis was legalized, many people started to shift their views and say things like, well, lots of people are already using it. I totally agree it should be legal. I just don't want to see corporations take over and make a lot of money or, or more people start to use or, or kids having problems. So I think the illegal status of the substances being used has a lot to do with it. You know, pundits or people just joking in the harm reduction area will say, you know, bars are safe consumption sites and they're accepted in every community. They lead to, you know, disorder and public urination and violence and, and other types of things. But, but we accept them as part of our community where people are going to go and, and get messed up and use substances, right? Yeah, it's very socially acceptable and even encouraged. You're supposed to do that. Right, right. So alcohol use is okay, uh, but we put some parameters around that to try and keep people safe in terms of how we distribute it, having a safe supply, you know, protecting minors and, and not drinking and driving. So... I think the legal, um, the criminalization and stigma has has a lot to do with it. You know, I want to remind people that harm reduction is not just supervised consumption sites. It started uh, in a a style of of intervention with needle exchanges, Um, but it is a suite of interventions and an approach that um, I think... You know, people forget that it's based on compassion and it's based on meeting people where they are at and that at every stage of drug use 
or at every stage of life, we can improve someone's quality of life and day-to-day existence. And more so than that, we can make them feel like they matter. Like when I come into this place, people respect me, they want to help me, they're there for me, and they're not judging me. Beyond that, in the bigger picture, we have an ethical imperative to provide universal health care to people, regardless of uh, the behavior that they're engaging in. And if we're going to apply that to people who are using drugs, you can see how you can easily apply that idea that some people don't deserve care uh, to people who are inactive or people who are obese or people who are engaging in any range of behaviors that put themselves at risk uh, in whoever uh, is making those decisions about what's in and what's out. So there is that idea of compassion and caring and connecting people and and telling them that they matter, but also that, you know, above and beyond that, it's part of their rights as citizens to receive health care. Well, thanks very much for your time and insight, Rebecca. Thanks very much. End of line. Thanks for listening and see you again soon. Listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus. I'm the founder and editor of The Sprawl. And stay tuned to what The Sprawl is up to this month because later this month we're part of Covering Climate Now. And that's a global effort by over 170 news organizations to all cover the climate crisis at the same time. The Sprawl is going to be getting into it at a local level. And this is going to mark the end of The Sprawl's Climate Action Edition. Make sure you subscribe to Sprawlcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, if you like the show, it'd be great if you could leave a quick review. Our theme music is by Dan D. Augustino and Kenny Murdoch, and our C-Train narrator is Holly McConnell. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>